So what's the story with the uh, propeller across the across your backside? He went, yeah, I just saw it in a shop for like the size of that, like the shape of it. So all right, so there's no story other than he like he'd seen the ship's propeller in some antique shop, liked the shape of it, and decided to have a tattoo across both buttocks and almost round the side of the the leg. It was just like, what was going on there? Welcome to the BDC podcast, a podcast in which staff at Barking Dagenham College share insightful and entertaining conversations with the digital learning team. We hope to enrich the community at the college by making connections in each fortnightly episode. I'm Nathan, I'm a digital learning apprentice. And I'm Sophie, I'm a digital innovation specialist. Today we're with Paul Schofield, course manager of UAL Foundation Art and Design Diploma. How's it going, Paul? It's not bad. It's not bad at all. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. And uh, thanks for inviting me. No problem. So with the podcast, we start by asking our guests to talk about something that they want to share. So Paul, what have you brought along to talk about? Well, I just sort of scratched my head a little bit in terms of thinking, am I going to come along and talk about students? Am I going to come along and talk about my day-to-day job, which is, you know, important? Uh, but not something that I wanted to bore anybody out there in kind of teaching land about. So I thought I'd talk about just the things that keep me going when I'm not here, uh, as in my practice and my need to make work, possibly a little bit about printmaking, possibly a little bit about Instagram obsessions and uh, maybe two new miniature dachshunds that I have at home at the moment, so called Gilbert and George. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Brilliant. Floor is yours. Oh, thank you. So uh, I've been here a number of years. So those that know me probably um, will know that I've spoken to or I've kind of bent people's ears as Andy has about his boat, which I'm all too happy to, to listen to. Uh, and I usually kind of tell people or show people because I'm uh, working hard in the print room that I am a bit of a manic printmaker. Uh, it's something that I um, can't help but do. Uh, and also through COVID, it's been kind of difficult to do, uh, not having the facility at home. So I kind of diversified slightly by keeping kind of visual diaries and sketchbooks, which is another kind of mad habit of mine, uh, to make work based on team meetings and Zoom meets and those kind of opportunities where we were on screen for long periods of time, weren't we? And we had to look at one another uh, when we were half-dressed or not ready for the Zoom meet to start. Or So beware, everybody, I was out there capturing sneaky pictures and doing sneaky sketches and sneaky drawings of which I have a, a, wealth, of, uh, a wealth of those to print and play around with. So I've started to kind of... It's made a bit of a difference, I think, to being online for what best part of two years. Uh, and so it's made me kind of look at my work practice differently again. Uh, it's made me want to do a little bit more of that away from college. I always think it's a benefit in terms of what you, you do within a classroom or a studio or a workshop because... You know, students enjoy, everybody enjoys looking at what you're doing or seeing what you're doing or practicing a technique that they're not used to or an idea that they may, maybe haven't had. So I've, I've kind of used, I've used that over the years, but at the moment I'm just kind of using the opportunities outside my teaching timetable to just make more work, which I'm not 
terribly sure how it's going to turn out. It's I'm producing things. I don't know necessarily how those things are going to, uh, or where those things potentially will take me, whether they're new prints or uh, I'm looking at putting together a website, which my daughter is helping me with at the moment, which is going to give me an opportunity to just celebrate some of that work, maybe sell some possibly. People probably don't know that I kind of illustrated for probably 25 years working various magazines, newspapers, book covers and record sleeves back in the day. Um, although we've got vinyl back, haven't we? So maybe the record sleeve will live again. So I have a background of kind of working with those things uh, and producing those things. This is just a, another wave or a, a different direction for me, I think, at the moment. I could talk a bit about, I could talk a bit about the illustration. I hadn't thought about that, but that was kind of interesting in the point of it's, it's, I, it's something that I still do when I can do it. Yeah. Uh, but the market, it kind of helps, you know, determine the market. The marketplace is a lot different now. So whether I could put my foot back into it and actually mm. get work, I'm not but, terribly sure. Uh, how you, how you got started with, yeah, like you were in it, yeah, how did you just, find illustration? Well, when I first started, I think I've always, I've, you know, I'm, I'm a printmaker. If I'm anything, people ask you what you are and they have to classify or pigeonhole, don't they? Mm. Or they, they need to in a sense that they, they understand you a little bit better, I suppose. And you can say I'm a printmaker and some people will understand what that is. Other people will think you're a, you're a photocopier or you're working a photocopy shop or something, which is not kind of what it is. And it's just a series of making works based on, you know, some form of block or some form of surface that you're printing from. But when I left, uh, you know, so how many years ago it is, because when I left university, it was a polytechnic. And when I left the polytechnic, it was difficult to know where a fine artist would go as a printmaker. You know, you could, I didn't want to be a fourth year, which were those, which was the kind of term that we called those guys that went down the cafe and still continued to carry on at the same place, but weren't going anywhere. So I didn't want to be a fourth year in that sense. I knew I would have to kind of like, you know, hitch up my trouser leg and catch a Yorkshire traction to London and try and get some work that way. So in the end, I just started hawking my portfolio around the streets, really. And as your list gets shorter, it gets longer because people are making recommendations. I'm not suggest. Oh, well, I actually probably don't think it's anything like that now, business-wise, because it's all digital and it'll all be a, an email and a and an electronic portfolio. But thirty years ago, it was a real portfolio, and you turned up on a doorstep and you showed some somebody your work, and they would say, you know, I'll give you a call or you leave a business card, and hopefully by the end of the week or the month, if you was you know if you're still on the, on the end of a telephone line, you might get a piece of work. And I've had some great jobs from people that have kind of looked at the portfolio and almost annihilated what they think is in the portfolio and then rung up the next day and given you a job, you know. So it's it's very strange, but it's about meeting people, showing work. And that's how I kind of started in the business. And once I got my first sort of uh, editorial piece, which was just something in Just 17 magazine back in the day, um, once you've got one printed job back, then people tend to look at that and think that you're able and you can cope. You're not going to be a disaster. You won't let them down and they give you some more work and it just snowballs from there. So eventually you're able to get yourself an agent and they can get you some 
better quality of work and then you can handle the editorial newspaper work yourself. I think you get quite quite interestingly typecast as well. You know, I ended up doing um, a lot of work for Arena magazine, which is a brand new men's magazine uh, that came out of The Face. So if, if anybody remembers The Face, which was um, uh, famously sued by Jason Donovan, uh, over some issue of his sexuality at the time and nearly uh, nearly was made bankrupt. What came out of the embers of the face was a new menswear magazine when men's magazines didn't exist called Arena. And that was run by, run by the same company, but also run by really good writers like uh, Robert Elms wrote for them, who's now a big radio star. And uh, a, lot of a lot of those kind of writers of the day uh, with great topics, great subjects. Uh, and I turned up, you know, as a youngster on the doorstep with my portfolio and managed to get a piece of work in there. And then for some, <laughs> for some unknown reason became the kind of the, uh, the specialist illustrator for those difficult topics that they couldn't photograph. So anything to do with men's sexuality or men's body parts or whatever would be an illustration that I'd have to put together because it was, you know, safe territory for a little bit of humour and obviously photographically quite difficult for them to cope with. So that was this quite an interesting period. And then that changed slightly for me to become the kind of uh, the restaurateur uh, illustrator. So I would like dutifully get shoved off to some fancy restaurant in London of which I would never be able to afford to book or eat at and just sit in the corner and do a little drawing which would then get turned into a print or something later on. So that that they're all they all lead, I think in terms of that kind of work creatively, it leads to some really interesting stories and you know and, and interesting jobs. Um because I always think the magazine work is just good business card work, you know, you're seeing, you're getting a piece of work into something that appears and then disappears like newspaper, chip paper, it's gone, but it's remembered on occasions and you get further work from it. So I did that for quite a number of years. And then that kind of leads you into book and record sleeve work and those kind of, you know, jobs that you, you get on the back of that really. So it's illustration can, you know, give you some interesting opportunities, I think, as it goes on. You just wanted to tell your story about Frankie Sweet, don't you? <laughs> we've had some, yeah, we've had some great life models. We had one called Leon, who was this amazing black dancer who had the body, you know, and, and I happened to have a little old ladies drawing group that night and they used to get really excited. But I have a, I had a, um, I used to have a colleague who would, when we had to, pose a model, if a model moves or they have to change the pose, you would just kind of chalk their feet, just make a mark on the chair where they are just so they could sit back into pose. So this one particular evening, Leon is striking the dynamic heroic pose, looking amazing as usual. And Tim just asked me to sort of mark his feet. As I mark his feet, I bang my head on, uh, I bang my head on it coming up. Oh, no. <laughs> This wasn't the finest moment in the room. <laughs> it can be a really good, I tell you what, it's the best lesson to be observed by a member of staff, a member of management on because they just can't cope. They don't know where to look or what to do. It's amazing because you're so relaxed. The students are so relaxed. You're used to the, the situation of it being a life studio with a, with a, you know, with a, a naked model of, of, of whatever gender and uh, they just can't cope with it. They're in and out in seconds. It's brilliant. <laughs> Top tip. 
So what drew you to printmaking in particular? I'm not sure really. I think I've always drawn and we, I, I was trained at a school where there wasn't an, an enormous amount of design around at the time. So design wasn't the, the big thing it is today. So it was about drawing and it was about drawing from cast and drawing from observation, drawing from life. In fact, the school was kind of, you know, we used to say you drew, drew and drew until your fingers bled. It was that kind of a, a, a training, if you like. And um, I used to just overcook drawings and overcook paintings. You know, it was like I needed somebody to come up and hit me over the head and take it away because I was in danger of spoiling it. And what printmaking does for you is it kind of pushes that moment that you're able to then just sort of peel off what you've got or look at what you've got as a result. And it's either a great, it's either great, good, indifferent, going somewhere or rubbish and goes in the bin. But the moment that decision is kind of made for you. So I enjoyed the idea of that because it was somehow editing myself, you know, or editing me down. So it kind of, it suits my processes, I think, and it suits my ideas. And consequently, most of the things I'm working on are just drawings and paintings towards print, which is backwards way around for most people. I think they probably work the other way. And when I was printmaking at, uh, in training at, at Leicester Poly, you know, back in the eighties, um, it was all about painting and the painters were really serious and they would come downstairs if they had a dry, if they had a dry moment and they couldn't think of what to do, they would come print as a way of sketchbooking some ideas. So it, it didn't have a, it didn't have a high status, you know, and I thought I kind of, we kind of, I was with a group of people that was sort of trying to, I suppose, rebalance that and do bigger prints to take on big paintings just to show that it was always seen as a poor cousin, really, in terms of working. So I was attracted to it for possibly all those reasons, really. It's quite interesting at the moment, isn't it? Because I was talking to Michael the other day because he's saying, you know, there's this idea that now we're looking at mentoring and looking after members of staff about their growth and about their person when it's been, you know, it's just on the, I know maybe it's on the agenda because it's a well-being issue, it's a mental health, it's, but it's so been lip service for as many years, you know, everybody's pretending, you know, yeah, you can do that bit of training or you need to do that. But essentially it, I used to have a member, I read, I used to have a manager that used to say, oh, I know you're doing that bit of freelance work, but keep, we keep quiet about it because it's private work. Cause if it was like, something illegal and not to be talked about, you know, whereas in essence, universities champion that kind of stuff because it's research, it's called research and it is research and tutors or professors or whatever, lecturers are establishing themselves with that kind of work outside. So it's actively encouraged, whereas an FE, I guess, or in schools, it's kind of frowned upon a bit which I've never really understood. So I'm kind of, I always feel like I should be, you know, working under the wire, really. I'm working here at night, say, some from about five till seven, a couple of hours each night, just as a sort of regular occurrence, just because, well, it's quiet, but, and it's, I'm not doing anything, you know, I'm not using any facilities I shouldn't be using. Um, but it's still, you know, I did, I always wonder about, you know, what people's attitudes to that is, <laughs> as if I shouldn't be doing it almost, you know. I just think, I mean, there's that quote from Woody Allen, isn't there? There's that, which I've always remembered, which is, um, uh, if you can't do teach, if you can't teach, teach PE. 
And I just think that's that whole thing about uh, the teachers, the tutors that really impressed me were those ones that actually were either part-time and did something the other days of the week, painted, printed, whatever. They were involved in that. And I think those were, not that I set out to be that, those kind of people or that person, but I think there's something in that. There's a connection to that. And I don't need to show off about that. I think you can, you know, it's part, it's in your DNA, it's in your fiber, it's in your being, but it's important to be connect. For me, it is anyway, connected to that. I can't help that. I almost have to sort of like, you know, not prove it, but I think with me also, I think it's, it's I, I teach it that way. It's aerobic, it's an exercise, it's, it needs to be, you're only as good as the last piece you've produced. So you, you can't live on your laurels with that. And we can all remember tutors that talked it, but probably couldn't do it or hadn't done it for 30 years. And you would think, well, I mean, and you wouldn't have less respect for them because they would be commanding people in a classroom or a workshop. But you would probably have paid more interest to somebody who was maybe a bit more connected to their craft or their practice outside of you know the, the establishment. I think it's important. And I, it probably doesn't get aired enough or encouraged enough for that sort of continuing practice to sort of, you know, continue. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of interesting ideas there that we will come to in the next section. But for now, we will be going to a lunch break. So this is the lunch break segment of the podcast where we ask our guests to bring along their favourite snack dish or dessert and now Paul I know which ones you've brought along to talk about and I think it'd be interesting if we structure this in a three course meal format so what have you brought for your starter I don't know actually starter what would I use for what would I kind of choose for starter I probably have something you know back to traveling I probably have something abroad and something maybe I'm just sitting in Placa Real in Barcelona at the corner restaurant and I'll probably have just something like a light soup or something to kick off with, to be honest. And then what would I have as a main course? Well, I've got a family that hate fish and hate seafood, so whenever I'm away from the family, that's my kind of go-to. So I'll probably have something like, if it was the same restaurant and was lucky enough to be there, uh, Either that or another establishment around the corner, which is run by a group of kind of quite forbidding Spanish ladies called, I think it's called the Spoons or whatever the Spoons is in Spanish. And they do this great monkfish stew, which is like a sort of Catalan dish with just great chunks of fish that I would, you know, probably eat for a week every night if I had the opportunity. And then if I was there and I was still going on all things Spanish, then I had to look this up actually the other day because I was thinking I've always really liked creme catalan, which is like a creme brulee. But I was thinking there must be a difference. And according to what I found out, the difference is that the catalan is milk and the brulee is cream. So I wasn't aware of that. But uh, and possibly they don't taste the same in that respect they can't do but the catalan is you know one of these puddings that is i guess fiercely from that area and a region of spain and is is something that they kind of you know which is a great thing about spain you've got regional dishes haven't you that are fiercely kind of championed and uh, defended so yeah 
Not that we've been to Barcelona for two years, of course. Uh, so the memory of that just lingers, really, Nathan. What was your best creme catalan? <sighs> difficult, really. It's got to be... It's got to be... The, I can't... I was thinking of the name of the restaurant. It's... It's in the corner, and it always has a huge kind of pop star style queue, uh, which you can mistake for expensive because when you actually bother to queue and get in, it's not really that expensive at all. But I did have a couple of really great meals there with Katie from Animation when we were on a Erasmus program a few years ago, and then we kind of, you know, would uh, put the world to right and just sit at a corner table, uh, looking out onto all the the crazy characters in the square, the dancers, the tightrope walkers and the uh, hawkers and general kind of, you know, pickpockets that you get in that kind of area. But yeah, that would probably be one of the best, I think. And you also mentioned uh, your favourite sweet. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? I had to think, because I've got a friend who's mad for discussing vague or unmade or old historical chocolate bars from the 1970s and we go through all this range and I, I picked one which is a genuine favourite, I think it's one I used to get as a, a kind of a uh, a treat when I was a youngster and it's a Caramac which is uh, again I looked it up because I thought this is interesting in terms of its time, it's a 1959 bar thin bar, like a dime bar, that kind of sort of thinness so I think it was given to me probably because we used to have that kind of old Milky Way thing about a sweet that wouldn't spoil your appetite. Uh, so the idea was it was small. And it was just a bar that one of my aunties used to give me as a, as a kind of reward after we visited. So I've kind of grown up with that orange and sort of mustard coloured. And being visual, you kind of save those kind of memories, don't you, in your head. So I kind of grew up with that, the Caramat bar, which is now produced by Nestle instead of Macintosh. Just a, the Cara is caramel and the Mac is Macintosh, I think, which I didn't know until I looked it up recently. I have to admit, I've never had a caramel bar. You must, you so must. So after yeah. this, like, I'm, I'm going to It's sharp, give it again. sweet and short. It's nothing for the, it's not, no problem with the waistline, I'm sure. <laughs> we had a conversation in the office earlier about how certain senses can bring back those memories. So yeah, that's that's really interesting that you can associate the sort of visual side of a caramel with what you just told us there. And you also described it as being a northern treat. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know where I. That might be untrue. <laughs> it might be <laughs> available UK wide, but it felt like kind of a northern treat, mm. as if it was. Uh, maybe I haven't seen it down here. That might just because it's not, you know, terribly popular or, or on trend. I don't know what entrained chocolate or what a chocolate entrained chocolate bar would be, to be fair. But um, yeah, it's and it's been around forever, so it felt kind of I don't know if Macintosh was the Northern Company. I know Terry's is, I think they were affiliated, or so it could be a York firm. So that's my thought process. I might be completely wrong. <laughs> I've never had a Caramac either, and oh, uh, I think I've lived in South of England my whole <laughs> life as well. So <laughs> might be on something there. <laughs> Great, that's the lunch break over. Okay, uh, thank you, Paul. Um, I've got loads of questions, so I'm going to no. jump straight in with a fairly big one. Who is your biggest art inspiration? Oh, wow. Um, 
Well, I suppose without sounding like, you know, I'm going to, I'm I'm not going to choose Vincent van Gogh, unfortunately for all those fans out there. Cause I just, or even Salvador Dali because they kind of, uh, overdone somewhat. But having said that, I just can't escape the magic of Pablo the Picasso. Really? Mm. I just, the man himself is, uh, uh, you know, you, they say don't meet your heroes, don't they? And I'm sure I might not have been terribly impressed with uh, some of his um, exploits, but uh, as a producer and as a as all things to all people, there's one bit of Picasso anybody could find to love and like and and adore. And I think it's just been that opportunity to visit some of those museums and spaces over the years that just give you an insight to the production levels the prolific status of somebody like that, that you can't, you would have to headbutt him or punch him if you met him on the street because he's just too talented for words, I think. You just, <laughs> you would. I went to see a printmaking show there years ago. I can't remember where, probably Barcelona. And as a printmaker, it was just really upsetting and it was wonderful and upsetting at the same time because he just thought, you know, I could hang up my lino cutting tools now because it's all been done a long time ago so much better than I could ever you know manage that's like a, a quite a common thing among creative people though isn't it that um you can get quite uh bogged down or, or compare yourself to other sure. people um how do you um combat that yourself how do you I, I dangerously that? you kind of I think you te- sometimes you can look at too much yeah you can look at too much and then you I can't help but start to you know they say that you know all the best artists copy and I'm sure they they didn't do uh, but I have to ration myself to that because I just end up kind of reproducing either consciously or subconsciously elements of what mm. I have, have had, you know, have enjoyed. And I've got a couple of um, sort of uh, contemporaries that are that are very good that I I just occasionally look at, but would try and stay away from in case I'm moving towards anything. And I think then if you have your themes and your subjects. You're not safe, but at least you've got uh, a viewpoint to, you know, to contribute and make work that isn't necessarily like others. And it's interesting to see, you know, the, the whole world is a, you know, is a Pinterest stroke Instagram opportunity, isn't it? So there's so much imagery around. Uh, it's very difficult not to soak that up and it goes in and out the fingertips and it's then part of what you do. It's hard. I mean, I've been, you know, on your instigation, uh, Sophie, I've been working on drastically behind Inktober. I'm a 10 or to 11 behind, but I've been working hard on it. It's interesting to sort of find an image based on that word and where you find it from and what process you put that through, whether you're borrowing something off an image and adding to it. I have to say I haven't created any of those images from fresh, so they are adaptations from everywhere, really. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about what Inktober is? <laughs> like, no, this yeah, is, I'm sorry, really glad you're of, doing yeah, it. Yeah, for all those guys out there that don't know, um, it's a it's a, uh, well, it's a drawing opportunity, I think. And it was a kind of a black ink and originally started opportunity for the month of October. And the, the brilliant... Uh, the system is that you, you know, obviously you're producing a piece of work per day, so one image per day, which for for all of us is is uh, a great challenge and one I've failed miserably at because uh, I'm 11 behind. But I will finish by mid-November. Not that that is really the idea. Um, 
But I think it's a, a great opportunity for everybody, anybody and everybody to get involved in producing a range of images based on, you know, a word association uh, and a word per day. And I think it's, uh, it's just healthy aerobic exercise, great, you know, creative aerobic exercise, really. So yeah, it's been it's been good to do, and I think the students that have been involved in it have have also uh, achieved a great deal. Yeah, I'm really glad that you um you yeah you you've taken up the challenge of October. It's it's a lot harder than it sounds, isn't it? Like to keep that consistency going. Much, yeah. But um, it's definitely a good practice to just uh draw something every day and keep that that part of your brain going that you you don't always feel like you have time for but even if it's just a little 10 minute thing it's it's, it's powerful yeah I, and anything and everybody does well it's a telephone pad doodle or yeah. like, as it used to be back in my day when you sit next to a kind of a, a a family telephone and just kind of scribble while you were or whether you you know you've got something else that you're doing absolutely it's mm. important to kind of uh, you know use that and everybody's got that even though they possibly don't think it's worthy of you know showing our attention i think it's it's a good part of it really yeah um, I have another question. Um, can I go for it, Nathan? Or, go or for you? it. Okay, wicked. <laughs> um, so it was basically about uh, what you mentioned about drawing people while they're on uh, meetings. Yeah. What What made you Actually, I don't know think the legal, of doing that? I don't that. know the legality to that. Actually. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have spoken about no, that at but all. It's actually. like <laughs> when you see someone on the train or the bus, you, you draw them. I guess it's a yeah. similar thing. What, what made you want to uh, start doing that? I guess it's... Well, it is kind of... Uh, I started doing it when my daughter was... Or tiny, and she would just she used to sort of have this habit of sucking her sort of fingers backwards and in sleep positions. And I think mm. there were so many sleep positions then. I used to just I knew I had a, a sort of short period of time to sort of capture an essence of what that pose was. And it was, you know, it was part of me putting books together and I was recording. And in a way, I've kind of they've always for me been more intimate than photo albums. And we've been able to get them out and say, look, we were here then. And we did that then, and this was the drawing I did of it rather than have 10,000 photographs. Uh, so I think they're kind of, those kind of books are coming into their own as, as she gets older and I get older and we, have, we can look back on them. Uh, so that was my starting point for that. And then I think as exercise where people move, we've always worked with life, drawers, life drawing where life models will dance, walk, move around and, and give us, you know, give you particular difficulties in terms of structure or, or a, a drawing pose. Uh, so it was just a kind of continuation of that, really. And I've done quite a few drawing courses at the drawing school uh, in Shoreditch where they will take you out into, you know, places like the Barbican in the evening where there's lots of crowd movement or Liverpool Street Station where there is a thousand and one people on the move and try and find, you know, your opportunity to sort of record that, which is incredibly difficult. So you have to kind of edit down your process and, and just go for a particular, you know, sort of mark and a particular movement really. So I guess it's out of just exercise. Some of these things never turn into anything, but then others do. And, and I go back over a period of books and pick things out and turn them into something, you know, when I'm ready, really. Paul, you mentioned about having uh, your work publicised. I wanted to know what was your your biggest accomplishment in terms of getting uh, something publicised. Probably, it was, it was a while ago, but I did a huge project, a project that turned into a huge project for uh, uh, 
a wine company called, well, it actually was a wine museum called Vinopolis, which opened, I think is closed now, but it was open for many years under the arches at London Bridge, so where the train station is. And they took a, this company took a, a huge, great sort of chunk of space there. And I was working on, it's quite an interesting project because I got to do a lot of wine tasting and they were creating images based on each grape. And then we had to do a range of these images. So at the time, it was a small job that kind of bloomed and, and snowballed into um, images that were going to on flags on the side of double-decker buses, on packaging, mugs, badges, fridge magnets. And before you know where you are, you've got almost like a you know political campaign. Uh, no rosettes, but you know everything else that went with that. Um, uh, and And also it was kind of a job that, I couldn't have managed to achieve without an agent or an agency behind me because it was too, you know, that a company like that would look for that kind of status of an agency that in case anything went wrong. Um, and it just ran and ran for about six months and these things were developed and changed and there was quite a nice, well, there was a very good aspect to it in terms of how it made the work look. It was about characterization, so we're looking at, what a berry, what a Chardonnay would look like, what a Riesling would look like. And they had particular ideas as well. So, for instance, uh, it was around the time of uh, Schumacher, the racing driver, so he became the German Riesling. So I had to make this look Germanic and almost arrogant in terms of how the character looked. And then the Italian ones are a bit sort of like, lovers and then you know they were kind of uh industrialists or i had a i think the shiraz became omar sharif the the actor was kind of you know sultry and you know all, you know that kind of thing so i was there was a slight characterization i think one of them was jack nicholson i can't remember the name of the grape chardonnay was a marilyn monroe so there was some kind of characterization around how those images looked and although I didn't have to make a Maori Morrow or a Jack Nicholson, there was a, an element of that in the image. So that was a great job to be involved in, and it just became a beast, really. It became huge and just ran and ran and ran, and we ended up with lots of drunken sort of wine-tasting, creative meetings where, you know, it was just another, try that one. That's, uh, I think that's, I think you like that. What do you think about that? So it was all those kind of, you know, opportunities. Uh, so that's probably the most memorable job I was ever involved in. Mm, amazing. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It's, it's really interesting just hearing all these different experiences that you've had over the years. I wanted to ask about the keeping active outside of, work aspect what what's the impact of that on your personal life oh crikey uh, i suppose less family time um uh, but then we've always i think creatives or lots of creatives depend to, tend to be quite nocturnal you know and so the uh yeah the candle power or whatever you're doing in terms of the table time i mean i, I think i trained for that through the years with you know endless coffees and overdosing on pro plus to keep yourself awake through the nights approaching deadlines we've all done that i know uh they're just aspects of not only when you're young but i think when you maybe the pro plus changes into now like too much red wine i'm not sure but um nighttime work <laughs> tends to be my period uh and so i would stay and work or work at the table at home 
So it has some impact, uh, but you've just got to, I think if it's part of your creative muse and your creative energies, then I just think you can't help it really. It's like anything. And I know you've been talking to others about their kind of, not just interests or obsessions, but their kind of directions. And I think you can't help that. You're just sort of, you know, locked into it. You just do the best you can. I stay as fit and healthy as I can, I think. <laughs> I do have one more question. I know yeah. I've been, I've been firing... I've been firing you loads of questions, but it's because I find uh, talking to creatives <laughs> really interesting. And I just wanted a bit of advice. I know you said that uh, for you, like making things comes easy. I, I consider myself quite a creative person, but sometimes it, it, it doesn't it doesn't come easy. And I sometimes uh, being able to pick up a pen or a pencil to draw sure. with a blank canvas, I find quite intimidating yeah, how no, do i get over that paul i need some advice it's hugely intimidating i think opening a sketchbook when you've got what we call i used to i just call them fridge freezers you know they've got this white space and you think what the heck can i do with that initially i suppose you just to be relaxed not to be precious which mm -hmm. is a danger and we all have that that you're being really precise and you freeze and you tight and then your shoulders go and then you can't do anything Maybe just preparation, prepare some grounds. Maybe you just mess up your background to work on top of. I get people to go through books and just stay in every 10th page or change every fifth page to a different color. Do something, have a big range of mark makers that you don't care about, biros, tipex, pens, all that kind of stuff. And then you might have a really nice mark onto something. Just some kind of opportunities to mess up your okay, ground yeah. and mess up your and not be and also to maybe change things around so if you're working on something like a book this way you might change the book and do a drawing over the top of it or upside down so you're changing things around quite a bit it it, it will work okay and so don't be afraid to make no, mistakes don't be, don't be afraid to make mistakes don't be afraid to make a mess i think that's what comes out of it and i have lots of fast moves that help you so there's nothing wrong with tracing paper. I use it all the time. You know, so trace a drawing or trace your own drawing and repeat it and enlarge it. Use a photocopier. Have this big wealth of stuff that you can work with so that before you know it, this book that's empty is on the table. is completely full of other stuff around it that you can work off. Yeah. Well, that's already made me want to start doing this. Yeah, well, <laughs> Just chatting about it. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. For my last question... I wanted to know, has there been anything in the creative sphere recently that has made you think, wow, that's genius and completely original? Uh, well, it's all, it's all good, isn't it? And I think you can't turn anything on televisually or film-wise or, I mean, we've had a bit of a lockdown, haven't we? So we've had a little bit of a time to sort of think, you know, there hasn't been much around. We haven't been out. We haven't been able to go out to see anything that's given us that sort of wow factor. Um, well, maybe maybe I could answer that in terms of opposite because I'm a big fan of a big fan of David Hockney, and I managed to get to the Royal Academy show, which was his kind of digital iPad drawings of his sort of Normandy lockdown. But I I have to say I just found them incredibly disappointing because. I think I've seen better from you know better from him in terms of the work he's done digitally. So I would say I've enjoyed the digital work that he's produced via the iPad before, and so I've tried to emulate some of that myself because it's again he's one of those guys that just kind of 
he's prolifically engaged with what he does and he's in his 80s now and he's probably turning more work out than I, I do in a week, in a day. You know, he's incredible. Uh, but this lockdown was just him at one place in Normandy with some really bad sunsets. And it, they're just, I don't know, you'll have to have a look at them, but I don't think they're very good. Okay, I'll check them out. <laughs> but look back to the the work he did there maybe a couple of years ago, which is kind of tree-based. And, and when he was in Yorkshire, he was, you know, there lots of funny stories about him kind of doing drawings down lanes in Scarborough and Bridlington and kind of, you know, with farmers shouting at him for getting off the land and that sort of stuff. But beautiful, you know, wonderfully put together. So he, he does amaze me because he's got such energy. And I think... If I just had an ounce of that, I'd be happy, really, because he's filming, he's photocopying, he's iPad drawing, he's doing ginormous canvases, and I'm sure he's got 15 assistants that, you know, make sure his creme brulee, is, his, his creme catalan is beautifully prepared, but um, he's still got it, you know, he's still got the, the uh, Yorkshire drive. That's what I'm after. So with lockdown, where it's just been such a big impact on... Uh, on everyone's lives what do you predict to come out of that creatively in the next few years interesting question I think you you wonder don't you whether there's going to be that great painting or that great film or that great series of photographs I'm not so sure there will be it might it might just be like it has been for me it's a time to an opportunity or a chance to just reassess what you, how you make a piece of work and what that's about. I think I've taken, recently I've been taking, it's just, so I take, you know, I I'm, I'm, take lots of pictures every day just of anything, you know, in terms of something that just captures my, uh, my eye or a shadow or a piece of light or a sky or whatever I do. And I might, and I've been turning those into images for, just for print, for prints really. And they're just like little snapshots or little moments that are charged for me that come from photographs. And they might be okay photographs on their own right, but I'm turning them into something else that has in some cases it's quite abstract quite an abstract look. You know, there is some there are some objects that are recognizable in there, but they are just a way of working that I've not produced work from. So maybe some people with different practices possibly. Um I don't know what it's done for creatives generally. It's probably been a, it might be a period, just a recharge period, and maybe there isn't going to be that, you know, that wonderful kind of genius painting in the attic or that, you know, masterpiece that comes out of anything, you know. I think all we've done is looked at ourselves a little bit too closely, haven't they? I don't, I don't you know, I wanted to look at my own reflection in team meets or Zooms for any more than that, and... That's, you know, that's, and it's been, I know some people have not enjoyed, it's the wrong word, but some people have managed that better than others. And I think it probably is managed by certain subject areas or careers or jobs in the way that a lockdown has forced you to work. But I don't think it's done creatives that, that much good, to be honest. I think it's probably one of those things that they glad to get out and about and back to something else and, and to to be inspired and and involved with work more that is possibly more you know especially if it's work on a social scale or involves community whereas we've all been you know stuck in bedrooms haven't we or, or kitchen tables <laughs> like me 
was just thinking, um, would you want to like shout out a place where people can find your art? Or I don't know if you want to promote that. As well. Don't know. Yeah, without uh, there might not be a there might not be a rush on that, but they could. I've got, I've got you know all my Instagrams are just sixty one, so it's just photo man sixty one, print man sixty one, running man sixty one. I'm even doing runs actually. Not very far, but I run on the canal in Yorkshire. So Running Man 61, Photo Man is 61, Print Man 61, and Drawing Man 61. Oh, wow, amazing. I know, it's I'll bad, it's crazy, isn't it? Well, I, run, I, do the, I, I look after the BDC one uh, just because I set it up really for the, but And I try to record everybody's, you know, everybody's um, lessons when they're you know, good to record, as I can do. So I'm not just doing my own lessons, but I've looked after that. And then we do, and then we've done Erasmus. So we've got Barcelona, BDC Barcelona as well. But the personal ones, yeah, I wouldn't, I don't mind. I don't mind. They, I need all the followers I can get. <laughs> I don't know. How that, I'm not even sure how that works, really. I don't hashtag anything. I just thought, for me, it was just a way of building up some confidence with imagery. And to be, to be f- honest, the... The drawing man is just me really cataloging all my drawings from the years of travel. And I, so I started, I don't know, about four years ago, and I'm still not up to date. So I've got, so it's a way of pulling a book down off the shelf and letting it fly a bit. Otherwise, it's just a book on a shelf in my cupboard that probably not many people will see. So I'm just, I'm just trying to get some I suppose some exposure that way I'm not really interested in too many comments or anything uh, not that I'm not happy to receive them but uh, I'm just trying to lead the possibly exposure for me it was a build up to possibly looking at uh, a website and selling work that way and gaining some interest from that really thank you for joining us Paul thank you for has been really fascinating just hearing about your insight into the creative process if you'd like to be on the podcast, please send us an email. We are digitallearning at bdc.ac.uk and we will be back next fortnight for another podcast episode. <laughs>